Tens of thousands of Indonesian tourists come to Israel and Palestine every year. Some of them come in groups that consist only of Muslims, while others are made up by Christians. How are the experiences and itineraries of the two types of groups different, and how are they similar? And what can we learn from these about tourism, identity formation, Indonesia, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Hi, and welcome to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows. In each episode, we feature innovative research in the humanities and social sciences by one of our fellows. Let's turn to Professor Ronit Ricci, who's interviewing Dr. Miriam Luking, a social anthropologist who studies Indonesia and its relationship with the Middle East. Miriam, today we'll be talking about your research on tourism from Indonesia to Jerusalem. Tell us, why is tourism relevant to the relationship between Indonesia and the Middle East? Yeah, so tourism is actually a relatively new phenomenon in Indonesia. The archipelago that consists of more than 17,000 islands, the mobility of people used to be related to other reasons like uh, trade and commerce, to resettlement programs and labor migration, and also to religious purposes. What uh, we call tourism, which uh, is the travel for leisure and recreational reasons, is not so widespread in Indonesia. Only recently, there is a growing middle class that can afford to travel. And in fact, many Indonesians travel with a religious aim. They might actually not call their travel tourism, but pilgrimage. The Hajj, the obligatory Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca, is the most important reason for Indonesians' travels abroad. Muslim people all over the world physically orient themselves towards the Kaaba, the pilgrimage destination in the Holy Mosque in Mecca. But being a physical center of religious ritual does not mean that Saudi Arabia or the Arab world more generally is also a point of orientation in ideological ways. Muslim traditions in Indonesia are in many ways different from Arab or Middle Eastern traditions, even though they do connect to that region of the world. As an example, there is also a very strong tradition of local pilgrimages in Indonesia. These local or domestic pilgrimages go to the tombs of famous Muslim figures and saints. The life stories and teachings of these saints are related to the Middle East. Some of them came from Arab countries or traveled there. They put on Arab dress or used the Arabic language and alphabet. At the same time, they incorporated pre-Islamic Indonesian culture into their teachings, like the famous Wayang, shadow puppet play. Some Arab features eventually became symbols of historically grown Indonesian Islamic traditions. We could describe this as an Indonesianized Arabness. Today, in a globalized world, where more Indonesian citizens can afford to travel, there are new encounters with the Arab world. For example, through labor migration, educational migration and through pilgrimage and tourism. Since the waiting lists to participate in the Hajj to Mecca have become very long, many Indonesians look for other religious destinations in the Middle East and around the world. Pilgrimages to Jerusalem are especially interesting within the booming pilgrimage business because the city is a popular destination among both Muslim and Christian Indonesians. Since when have Indonesians been coming to Jerusalem? Christian groups have come since the 1980s to Jerusalem. Many of them explain to me that they are so-called Holy Land pilgrimages are an equivalent to their Muslim compatriots' pilgrimages to Mecca and Medina. 
Indonesian Christians belong to the Roman Catholic Church and to various Protestant denominations, like the long-standing Calvinist and Lutheran churches, but also Pentecostal and Evangelical churches, which have become more and more widespread in Indonesia in the last 20 to 30 years. Muslim Indonesians only recently started to visit Jerusalem. What the travel agents for incoming tourism in Jerusalem told me is that there has been a significant increase of Muslim tourism from Jerusalem over the last five years. 70% of the Indonesian groups are Christian, but the Muslim market is growing. Since the access to Jerusalem is restricted for people from the Palestinian territories and Israel's neighboring countries, Muslim pilgrims who do visit Jerusalem are from more distant countries like Indonesia and Malaysia, from Turkey and from Europe. Moreover, the fact that an Israeli visa is needed in order to visit Jerusalem is controversially discussed in the Muslim world. Some religious authorities, like Al-Qaradawi from the Muslim Brotherhood, demand to boycott Israel, while Turkey's president Erdogan encourages Turkish Muslims to travel to Jerusalem. Talking about tourism from predominantly Muslim countries, there is a difference between countries that have diplomatic relations with Israel, like Turkey, and those that don't, like Indonesia and Malaysia. How can Indonesians even enter the country? Indeed, the two countries share no diplomatic relations. But there are visa agreements. Indonesians can apply for tourist visas in a guided group. Around 40,000 Indonesians visit Jerusalem each year, usually crossing the borders from Egypt or Jordan in a guided group tour that also includes a visit to the pyramids of Giza and to Petra in Jordan. Jerusalem is the highlight of the journey and equally important to Muslim and Christian groups. You said that Christian groups have been visiting Israel since the 1980s and that some of them see the journey as an equivalent of the Hajj which is so important among the Muslim majority of the country. How many Christians live in Indonesia and what is their relationship with the Muslim majority? Indonesia has more than 260 million inhabitants. About 10% of them are Christian, which equals a number of 26 million people. Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world and, as we discussed before, it is home to the world's largest national group of Muslims, around 87% of the population but it is not a Muslim country by its constitution. The preamble of the Indonesian constitution defines the belief in one God as the first principle of the country, and there are five officially acknowledged religions in Indonesia – Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism and Confucianism. In addition to different religions, there are more than 300 different ethnic groups with different languages. Bahasa Indonesia, the Indonesian language, is for many Indonesians the first foreign language they learn. In some of the large ethnic groups, there are adherents from different religions. As an example, in a Javanese community or even within one family, there might be Muslim as well as Christian members who share the same language and culture, including food, music, art and literature. However, in recent years, the religious affiliation has become more important. Especially in urban areas, there is more separation between Muslim and Christian people. Is this separation also visible in their travels to Jerusalem? How do the Muslim and Christian itineraries differ? The separation is relevant here because the groups are either Muslim or Christian. There are no mixed Muslim-Christian groups. Religious free time activities like traveling are an example of the separated Muslim and Christian life worlds in Indonesia. Muslim groups come with the aim of completing the pilgrimage to Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is considered the third holiest place in Islam after Mecca and Medina. A prayer at Al-Aqsa Mosque is considered very powerful and therefore the groups spend as much time as possible on the so-called Haram al-Sharif, the holy compound, with Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. 
In addition, they visit grave sites and memorial tombstones of prophets in Islam, like the gravesite of Ibrahim in Hebron, in Judaism known as the tomb of the patriarchs of Abraham and his family, the tomb of King David, Nabi Daud in Islam, and a memorial tombstone for Musa, Moses, near Jericho. Christian groups on the other side follow the life story of Jesus. Besides Jerusalem, which is the city of crucifixion and resurrection, they visit the church of the nativity and the shepherd fields in Bethlehem, Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus, the Jordan River baptism site, and the Galilee, remembering the stories of Jesus and his disciples. It's interesting to hear about these differences. What about similarities between Muslim and Christian pilgrims from Indonesia? The Hajj to Mecca and Medina is obligatory for Muslims who are physically and financially capable of doing the journey. For many Muslims, it is a lifelong goal. When they return from Mecca, they are honored as pilgrimage returnees. Sometimes the government or an employer supports people in doing the Hajj. The same happens in Christian regions in Indonesia, like in Sulawesi or Sumatra, where the local government sponsors Christian Indonesians' pilgrimages to Jerusalem. This is one of the many examples that shows parallels between the prestige of the Hajj and pilgrimages to Jerusalem. A more practical similarity is the way people travel, in a guided group, in a community of fellow believers and with a tour guide. Many groups wear uniform clothing, like t-shirts in the same color, and they would prepare for the travel together. Upon return from Mecca or from Jerusalem, there are often celebrations and the pilgrims distribute gifts and souvenirs to share the blessings from the holy sites with family and friends. That is interesting. It sounds like an exclusive community of travelers or pilgrims. The Israeli sociologist Eric Cohen has described group tours as a quote-unquote environmental bubble. Do you think this describes the experience of Indonesian groups too? Very much. As Eric Cohen has described for guided package tours more generally, people who travel in a group see the person sitting next to them on the bus or the one standing in front of them at a sightseeing site. They talk to other group members and to their guide. They stand, walk, sit and eat together. In religious tourism, the in-group experience is very strong. As an example, a Catholic group from Indonesia that I met recently had prepared for the Holy Land pilgrimage for several months. They traveled with the priest of their home congregation and had beforehand decided who would take on certain tasks during the pilgrimage. One person playing the guitar, others taking care of readings and prayers or collecting donations during the Holy Mass and being constantly in touch face to face and also via their WhatsApp group. Especially when it comes to basic needs, the safety of the package tour is important to Indonesian pilgrims. They sleep in hotels that accommodate Asian tourists' taste and offer rice for breakfast, and they have lunch and dinner at Asian restaurants. In some of these restaurants in Bethlehem and Jerusalem, the waiters even know Bahasa Indonesia, the Indonesian language. The Palestinian own owners of these restaurants put up Indonesian batik artwork and play Indonesian pop music from the internet. The Israeli and Palestinian tour guides also speak Indonesian, and some of them have become experts in Indonesian humor. One of the guides told me that he received much higher tips since he was able to make Indonesian jokes and understood the sense of humor of his customers. Later I saw that some Indonesian pilgrims had become his fans, filming him while talking and uploading his videos on YouTube and Instagram, as we can hear in this example. When I talk to the pilgrims, I see how proud they are to hear people in the Holy Land speaking their language. 
Two other things that many tourist guides describe as typically Indonesian are shopping and taking pictures. Apparently, Indonesian groups are among the strongest buyers in guided package tourism in Israel and the West Bank. I found out that many pilgrims spend as much money on gifts and souvenirs as they spend for the whole travel package, between 2,000 and 3,000 US dollars. This sounds like the Indonesian pilgrimages to Jerusalem are an all-Indonesian experience in terms of the language, the religious rituals, community experience, eating habits and other activities like shopping and taking pictures. This seems to be typical for guided package tourism in general. How does their destination, that is the Middle East, matter for them? The Middle East matters first of all as a holy place. Indonesians' pilgrimage practices in the Middle East are similar to the traditions in domestic pilgrimages to grave sites, mosques, churches and places in nature that are considered to hold supernatural powers. The pilgrims seek spiritual experiences and take time to pray at the sites and experience the pilgrimage community. In addition to the spiritual aims, there is also a political component. When I first started to look at advertisements for the group packages, I noticed that Christian Holy Land pilgrimage tours are advertised as travel to Jordan, Egypt and Israel, while Muslim tours are advertised as pilgrimage to Jordan, Egypt and Palestine. So Indonesian Christians refer to the Holy Land as Israel and Indonesian Muslims as Palestine? At least that's the rhetoric of travel agencies. In the advertisements and tour descriptions, the Muslim tour operators use Palestine as the only country name, which is not mentioned by Christian travel agents who speak only of Israel. I also noticed that there is no use of other terms like West Bank or Palestinian territories. What is the reason for this? My interviews with travel agents show that many travel agents have a strong personal motivation for their business. When I asked Inaya, and uh, the name Inaya is a pseudonym here, an Indonesian travel agent, about her motivation for organizing Muslim pilgrimages from Indonesia to Jerusalem, she explained, quote, Making the pilgrimage to Al-Aqsa Mosque contributes to securing the Muslim character of the site. End of quote. She further explained that Jerusalem is a Muslim city and the capital of Palestine, and that she wanted to support her Palestinian brothers and sisters. In a similar manner, Christian travel agents tell me that they feel connected to Israel because Israel fights Islamic terrorism, arguing that they feel threatened by Islamic fanaticism, which they saw as a growing movement globally and in Indonesia. So this relates to the Muslim-Christian relationship within Indonesia, where in recent years religious affiliation has become increasingly important and is sometimes referred to as modern piety. People in urban areas and modern settings practice a religious lifestyle with pious clothing, strict adherence to religious rules and exclusive Muslim or Christian environments. Does this mean that Muslim Indonesians are siding with Palestine and Christians with Israel? And does this reflect a Muslim-Christian divide within Indonesia? Yes and no. At first sight, this is the impression we get that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is adopted as a surrogate conflict, like it has happened in Northern Ireland, where Catholic Irish Republicans emphasize their solidarity with Palestine and Protestant British Unionists side with Israel. But the story is more complex. When I got to know Inaya, the Muslim travel agent, better, I understood that she's actually very much under pressure within her own peer group of young modern Muslims in Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia. 
She told me that one of her best friends does not speak with her anymore because of the business with Jerusalem package tours. Why is that? This leads back to the controversial question of traveling to Jerusalem that I have mentioned earlier. Some Muslim people boycott Israel and do not want to apply for an Israeli visa to visit Al-Aqsa Mosque. The more I talked to Inaya, the more I realized how much her claims of solidarity with the Palestinian people are directed at an audience at home. To people like her former best friend who criticize her for traveling to Jerusalem. She's under pressure to legitimize her business. Moreover, the travel agency's advertisements relate to people's emotions. There is a long history of support for the Palestinian cause in Indonesia with strong charity activities. Many people have heard of Palestine. However, what I found out during my research is that this pro-Palestinian discourse is much more prominent in public debates within Indonesia, on online social media and in travel agencies' marketing strategies. When I talk to Indonesians during their stay in Jerusalem, the average participant is not a political activist. Most of them know very little about the political situation in the Middle East. How did you come to this conclusion? During pilgrimages to Jerusalem, the participants are focused on spiritual experience. Apart from prayers and the experience of community, they want to buy gifts and souvenirs for friends and family. The importance of shopping shows how much they care about the return and about the social relationships back home. When we come to talk about politics, it turns out that the pilgrims often do not know where exactly they are. As an example, one of the favorite Asian restaurants of Indonesian pilgrims is located right next to the separation wall in Bethlehem. But even though the wall is right in front of them, many pilgrims do not really see it and do not know where exactly they are. They see the Holy Land through biblical and Quranic lenses and not through political ones. But this contradicts what you said earlier about the contrasting use of the country names Israel and Palestine and the travel agents' statements of solidarity. Yes, it is a contradiction. This contradiction reveals some general patterns in guided package tourism and something specific about the Indonesian engagement with the Middle East. There is a difference between the average group participant and the travel agent, who might have a strong personal motivation or political conviction or who is under pressure to legitimize the business, as I described for Inaya. The Christian solidarity with Israel is another good example for this contradictory and ambivalent engagement with political questions. I said that almost all Christian groups refer to the Holy Land as Israel, but when I accompanied Christian groups of different denominations, I found out that there are remarkable differences between on the one hand, the Roman Catholic, Calvinist and Lutheran churches that have a long tradition in Indonesia and are rooted within ethnic communities and, on the other hand, newer Christian movements like Pentecostalism, which are prominent in urban areas. In Pentecostalism, believers consider previous religious practices as wrong. They repent and feel newly born in the Holy Spirit when they convert to Pentecostalism. Some Christians who convert mark their transition with a new baptism. When this baptism happens in the Jordan River, this is considered as something very special. In demarcation from the mainstream churches, Pentecostal Christians engage with elements of Judaism or the so-called Hebrew roots of Christianity. For them, the connection to the Jewish people as God's chosen people is important. And in the course of globalization and the globalization of enemy images like Islamophobia, 
the connection to the state of Israel is seen as a joint struggle against the perceived threat of Islamist movements. This interest in the Jewish roots of Christianity is widespread among Adventist Christians and in evangelical and Pentecostal traditions all over the world. For the Middle East, it means that many of these Christians support Israel. But you mentioned the competition with mainstream churches. How does this competition between different Christian denominations come up in the field of tourism? In the Holy Land tourism industry, ideological competition and economic competition are combined. The different churches compete over members' recruitment and the travel agencies compete over customers. Relating to Israel and the Jewish people can be a claim of authenticity in this competitive environment. I noticed that some travel agencies even change their itineraries and include places that might be seen as Jewish destinations, like Rachel's tomb, for example. The competition between travel agencies and between religious institutions sounds like economic interests and ideological convictions are mixed. A very complex constellation. True, complexity is the keyword here. The discourses that I have described are very much related to tensions within one religious community. This means that it is too simple to talk about Muslim-Christian relations in Indonesia. We need to talk in more detailed ways about intra- and inter-religious relationships. But let's focus on the example of tourism. As I have said before, these discourses are not really reflected in the pilgrims' practical interests and experiences. The visit to Rachel's tomb, for example, is of course inspired by the discourse of the Hebrew roots movement in Christianity. But for the Indonesian pilgrims, it is yet another opportunity to pray at a gravesite and ask for blessings. When I talk to the pilgrims, they often say that they seek blessings or berkah, which is one of the many Indonesian terms that is derived from Arabic and is also similar to the Hebrew term for blessings, bracha. The observations of Israeli and Palestinian tour guides confirm this. One of the tour guides who has been accompanying Indonesian groups for over 30 years explained that Indonesians want to feel, touch and see. When it comes to the sensual experiences, the political discourses do not matter so much anymore. He argued that this is a significant difference to religious tourists from Europe or North America who were more intellectually engaged. I see many Indonesian pilgrims holding their hands on the walls in the Via Dolorosa, kissing tombstones or putting scarves on them, taking earth from holy sites or putting small pieces of paper into the stones at the western wall. So summing all of this up, you're saying that first of all, the sensual and spiritual experiences are important for Indonesian pilgrims. They come all the way from Indonesia to complete a pilgrimage that is seen as a prestigious abroad travel in their communities back home. Political statements are provoked by internal tensions between different religious streams in Islam and Christianity in Indonesia and by economic competition between travel agencies. Exactly. Guided package tourism tends to strengthen the social identity of tourists. In this regard, the Indonesian package tours to Jerusalem resemble other package tours. The special aspect in Indonesian's tourism to Jerusalem is the political component that comes up in travel agencies' marketing strategies and in public debates. But the ordinary people are often more concerned about the spiritual meaning of the journey and about the social impact, like in the example of uploading pictures on online social media or distributing gifts upon return. Both 
The discourses and the practices define the relationship between Indonesia and the Middle East, which is ambivalent or even contradictory in many ways. So it is not only politics and diplomacy that define transnational encounters, but as we see in the example of tourism, it is also growing economic markets and people's personal interests. This means that in the long run, Indonesian tourist interest will probably also influence the Middle East. Like for instance, when there is a demand for Asian food or Indonesian language skills in the tourist industry. And do the Indonesians move only in the microcosm of the travel group or also experience moments of surprise and encounters with Jerusalemite realities? There are certainly small moments of surprise. I remember a scene of a Muslim bus driver singing along with Indonesian church songs, which he memorized being a driver for Indonesians for more than a decade. We were on the way from Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea while the group was cheerfully singing church songs and was astonished when suddenly their bus driver started the next song in Indonesian language, as we can hear in this recording. The group members did realize that their Muslim bus driver, their Jewish-Israeli tour guide and the Catholic tour leader from Indonesia were cooperating with each other in a very friendly way. Some of the travel agencies for incoming tourism in Jerusalem have long-lasting business friendships with Indonesian travel agents. And there is a pragmatic cooperation between Jewish, Muslim and Christian Jerusalemites who work in the tourism sector in hotels, bus companies, travel agencies, souvenir shops and tour guiding. Even if the tourist's experience is only briefly, like in the scene with the Palestinian bus driver singing Indonesian church songs, I believe that it does have an impact on Indonesians' engagement with the Middle East, especially because of modern communication technologies. In their excitement, the group members filmed the bus driver with their smartphones and shared this on online social media. Of course, the same holds true for less positive experiences, like a bus of Muslim Indonesian tourists being thrown at with stones by Jewish settlers in Hebron. So. There is some room for surprise and curiosity and reflection, even in guided package tourism. Thank you, Miriam, for these fascinating insights into the world of Indonesian tourism to Jerusalem. Your examples indeed teach us a lot about inter- and intra-religious dynamics in Indonesia and the impact that tourism can have for the relationship between Indonesia and the Middle East. Where can we learn more about all of this? I have published about Indonesian tourism to Jerusalem in a special issue of the journal Beidrachen, which is a leading international journal for Southeast Asian studies. And in my book, Indonesians and their Arab world, I discuss more generally how Indonesians engage with the Arab world. And also in our newly founded Indonesia network at the Hebrew University, which we call in Indonesian language Indonesia et Uni Ibrani, We organize talks, conferences and other Indonesia-related academic and cultural events on campus. The case study on tourism is a very vivid example for Indonesians' ambivalent connectedness to the Middle East. 
The importance of Indonesian language in the tourism sector and also our teaching and research activities at the Hebrew University show that this connectedness is not one-sided. And I think the fact that Indonesia led me from Germany to Israel and Palestine is in itself an example of globalized and historical connections between our societies. You have been listening to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows in the Humanities and Social Sciences. In this podcast, we hope to offer a taste or a bite of the research taking place in our society and the kinds of conversations taking place in its offices, hallways, and indeed the kitchen. Additional episodes discuss matters such as medieval women's letters from the Cairo Geniza and visits of former German Jews to their old hometowns after World War II. Our thanks to Professor Yigal Brunel, who helped produce this episode. Ori Dror is our podcast director, and David Goodman is our sound recorder and editor. The Buber Society is a German-Israeli collaboration housed at the Hebrew University and funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. For more information about the Martin Buber Society of Fellows, about this episode, and about additional episodes, please visit our website, buberfellows.huji.ac.il. That's buberfellows.huji.ac.il.